Howdy, howdy, folks. I am Father Fred Gatchett, the rector of Sacred Heart Cathedral in Salina, Kansas. And you are tuned into the Double-Edged Sword program. Here on the Divine Mercy family of Catholic radio stations, 88.1 KVDM Hayes, 88.1 KRTT Great Bend, and 101.7 KJDM Lindsberg and Salina. And here on the Double-Edged Sword program, we are constantly trying to cut to the heart of a deceptive culture. And the deceptive culture that I want to cut to the heart of today is the Pharisees. Um, when we look at the Pharisees in the, in the New Testament, in the Gospels, and the writings of St. Paul, um, for the most part, I think most people come away from any conversation or any kind of a reference to the Pharisees with kind of a bad taste in their mouth. Um, in fact, we even talk about Phariseeism. It's even been turned into a verb, you know, or someone being Pharisaic as an adjective, that this means somehow or another that um, someone is, is unreasonably stuck to the rules or something like that. And the thing is, it's a, like anything, it's a multifaceted sort of deal. And I think that one of the, one of the glories of Catholic Radio is going to give us a chance to kind of untangle this a little bit so that we can kind of see what's really going on. The Pharisees, it comes from the Hebrew word, the parushim, which means the separated ones. And there are a number of very famous Pharisees in the Bible, like Jesus. He was a Pharisee. We know that because the Sadducees, who are an opposing party within Judaism of the Pharisees, they come and they attack Jesus. They, they try to show that his Pharisaic beliefs, for example, in the resurrection and in you know some kind of an afterlife are, are somehow bogus. Whenever they come with their with their, you know, kind of their goofy example of, you know, there was a man who died and he left no children. And so the, um, the law of Moses requires then that his brother would marry the widow to raise up children in the name of the brother who died. Now there were seven brothers and they all married this widow. And then when they had none of them left a child. And so then in this resurrection that you believe in Jesus, whose wife will she be? And so, um, then, you know, Jesus then takes them to task and says they don't understand the Bible. And so, you know, you can see that Jesus himself was a Pharisee. St. Paul was a Pharisee. He even says so in the letter to the Philippians when he's kind of giving a, a, um, a resume of himself. He said in Philippians chapter 3, verses 4 through 6, St. Paul says, If someone else thinks they have reason to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee. As for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness, based on the law, faultless. And so St. Paul includes in his resume that he was a Pharisee. Nicodemus, um, the Gospel of St. John says, Nicodemus, a Pharisee, came to Jesus at night, you know, looking for guidance. And so um, we see that, you know, that the, there were a number of people in the New Testament who were Pharisees who were not necessarily bad people. You know, Jesus, St. Paul, and Nicodemus being three notable examples. And so the thing is, with when we talk about the Pharisees then, you know, we can see that they weren't necessarily bad people, and that furthermore, Jesus didn't necessarily think they were bad people. You know, there's a number of places where, um, you know, Jesus really kind of takes them on. When he says, you know, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, you know. And he does that in the Gospel of St. Matthew and also in the Gospel of St. Luke. Also, the antagonism between Jesus and the Pharisees is very well documented. In Matthew chapter 9, verses 32 to 34, it says, While they were going out, 
a man who was demon-possessed and could not talk was brought to Jesus. And when the demon was driven out, the man who had, who had been mute spoke. The crowd was amazed and said, nothing like this has ever been seen in Israel. But the Pharisee said, it is by the prince of demons that he drives out demons. Well, you know, again, there's no point in trying to sugarcoat that. You can see that it's quite you know, clear that um, there was some antagonism um, between Jesus and the Pharisees. And um, later on, you know, when Jesus drives out another demon in the Gospel of St. Matthew in chapter 12 this time, it says they brought him a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute, and Jesus healed him so he could both talk and see. All the people were astonished and said, could this be the son of David? In other words, could this be the Messiah? But when the Pharisees heard this, they said, it is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this fellow drives out demons. And so the, you know, the antagonism um, between Jesus and the Pharisees is very clear. But at the same time, I think though that you can make a pretty strong case that Jesus being a Pharisee himself, and a lot of the folks back then too, you know, it wasn't just Jesus, a lot of people respected the Pharisees. Because again, the Pharisees, the parushim, the separated ones, um, what were they doing? Why were they separating themselves? Well, they were separating themselves for very good reason. And this is one of the things we have to understand about the Pharisees, or we're not going to get a lot of what goes on between you know, Jesus and the Pharisees, both for the positive and the negative. You know, what we have in the Old Testament, whenever Moses is um, dealing with the folks, and in, the, um, in, in, for example, in the book of Deuteronomy, you know, Moses tells the people, you know, the book of Deuteronomy in a nutshell is a, it, it's a, a big long farewell speech by Moses in which he's telling the people, if you obey the covenant, you will prosper. If you forsake the covenant, you will suffer. And, and, and that's about as simple as you can put it. And so Moses tells the people, he just kind of repeats the same message over and over and over again throughout the entire book of Deuteronomy that um, when, you, when you get ready to go across the promised land, you know, when you take over the promised land, Remember the covenant. And, um, and then Moses even goes so far as to say, but when you forsake the covenant, because Moses knows how the Israelites are just kind of bent on idolatry and, and they're not really too hip on wanting to do everything that God wants them to do. But he says, when you forsake the covenant, then repent and come back and, you know, and God will take you back. But the thing is, is as we go through the Old Testament then primarily the book of Judges, that's the one where it really kind of comes to a head. You know, after the people settle the promised land into the book of Joshua, during, and if you read the end of the book of Joshua, it says this, you know, that as long as Joshua and his generation was alive, the people did pretty well. You know, they worshiped God, they, they honored the covenant, they did what they were supposed to do, and for the most part, they did okay. But then after Joshua and his generation died off, the people defaulted back to their idolatrous ways, which, you know, again, it seems to be a perennial um, kind of temptation with the Israelites. They just couldn't stay away from it. And so throughout the book, so throughout the book of Judges, then what happens is the Israelites will fall into idolatry. Something bad will happen to them. The Philistines, you know, one of the, you know, one of the surrounding tribes or kingdoms will come in, subjugate them, either make them slaves or um, make them kind of a vassal state where they have to pay huge amounts of tribute to, you know, King Eglon or one of the, one of the surrounding kings to keep them from coming in and attacking them and destroying all their stuff. And then they cry out to God and say, oh God, you know, we've been bad. You know, we, 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 we repent, we're sorry. And then God would send a judge. He would send a judge, you know, like Gideon or, or Ehud or somebody like that. And then they would, the judge would come in, run the bad guys out of town, and the people would 
do what they were supposed to do. They would follow the covenant like they were supposed to do for a while. And then whenever the judge would die, about 20 minutes after the funeral, they would fall right back into idolatry again. And again, if you just read the first couple chapters of the book of Judges, it just lays out very clearly what the Israelites were doing and what was causing all their problems. So then by the time the book of Judges is over with, at the end of the book, the very last verse in the book of Judges says, and those days there was no king in Israel and everybody did what he thought best. Or to use our 21st century vocabulary, everyone made their own choice. And so, you know, you can see that after the book of Judges, which is a disaster, the state of Israel is a disaster. And, um, you know, the, because, you know, people are just doing their own thing. They, they've followed the, you know, the idol of self, you know, kind of like what Adam and Eve did in the Garden of Eden. And so now, the next thing that happens in is in, in the first book of Samuel, Samuel is the last of the judges. And, um, you know, he anoints Saul to be the king, and that's kind of a disaster. But then David becomes the king. And under David, things are pretty good. You know, you know, just the whole package of goodies, you know, militarily, economically, spiritually, politically, socially. It's kind of it's like Israel's golden age. But then after David dies, Solomon takes over and things take another quantum leap up. And for a while they do okay, but then Solomon, guess what? You know, defaults and falls into idolatry. And that's the beginning of it. And then, you know, the, the kingdom just kind of falls apart from there. For a number of years, two kingdoms exist, the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. The northern kingdom of Israel goes completely over to idolatry. And in fact, um, Jeroboam, the king of uh, the northern kingdom of Israel, sets up a couple of golden calves so that the Israelites living in the northern kingdom of Israel will not go to the southern kingdom of Judah to go to the temple. Because as long as they go to the temple, Jeroboam will not have full control over the kingdom. And so he goes, well, the people always want idols. I'll give them idols. And so he sets up two golden calves, one on the northern part of the kingdom and one on the southern part of the kingdom, Dan and Beersheba, and says, here are your gods, O Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Basically the same thing that Aaron told the people when they worshiped the golden calf in Exodus 32. And so now, you know, the people are into full-fledged idolatry again. The, in 721 BC, um, because of this idolatry, the northern kingdom of Israel gets taken over by the Assyrian Empire, and those ten tribes are just assimilated into the Assyrian Empire, and they disappear forever. Um, they're gone off the face of the earth, leaving a couple of tribes of Benjamin and Judah in the south, in the, in the southern kingdom of Judah, and where the, where the city of Jerusalem is, and that lasts until 587 B.C., until the, the Babylonians take it over. After the Babylonian exile, when the, you know, the people are in Babylon for 70 years, then after that, then they come back and try to resettle the promised land with mixed results. Um, they never really kind of, they never get it back to the kind of the golden age of King David and, um, and the first part of the reign of King Solomon, but they do get Jerusalem, they get the temple kind of rebuilt, they get the walls put up around the city of Jerusalem again, and they're trying to get their life and their religion and everything going again. And then the Greeks show up under Alexander the Great. And then, you know, a lot of the people sell out to the Greeks. A lot of the, the Jewish people just kind of go doing Greek things until the um, Judas Maccabeus and his brothers, we read about this in the books of the Maccabees, run the Greeks out of town. So then when we get to the time of Jesus, now the Romans are in town. And at the, at the end of the Gospel of St. John, this is after Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. And um, after Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, it says in, in John chapter 11, verses 45 to 53, 
Therefore, many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary and see what Jesus did believed in him. Again, this is after Jesus calls Lazarus out of the tomb. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. What are we accomplishing, they asked. Here is this man performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and then the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation. And there is where you have the crux of what's going on with the Pharisees. They're operating for the most part, and we'll talk a little bit more about some other th motivations they have, but for the most part, they're operating out of fear. The, the Pharisees are basically saying, look, we might be dumb, but we're not stupid. If we go back and look throughout our history, whenever we forsake the covenant, whenever we do not follow the law of Moses, something bad happens to us. The Philistines take us over, the Assyrians take us over, the Babylonians take us over, the Greeks take us over, and on and on and on. There's more than that. But they know that whenever they do not follow the law of Moses, whenever they forsake the covenant, something bad happens. And so they're going, we've learned our lesson. We're not going to do this anymore. We are going to follow the law and we're going to follow it to the letter because that's the only protection we have against the Romans. You know, as bad as the Babylonians and the Assyrians and the Greeks were, the Romans really have the power if they want to. They could come in, destroy Herod's temple, the temple that Jesus would have walked around in. They could have dispersed the Jews throughout the entire Roman Empire, and then the Jewish religion would just disappear. And they don't want that to happen, obviously. You know, you can't blame them for that. And so anyway, so then going on to verse 49, one of them named Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, spoke up. You know nothing at all. You do not realize that it is better for one man to die for the people than for the whole nation to perish. Caiaphas did not say this on his own, but as high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation, and not only for the nation, but also for the scattered children of God, bringing them together and to make them one. So from that day on, they plotted to take his life. So there you see the motivation of the Pharisees. You know, they are scared. And, you know, you can see then with some of the other altercations that Jesus has with the Pharisees. For example, in Matthew chapter 12, it says, At that time Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry and began to pick some heads of grain and eat them. And again, anybody in Kansas, you can't hardly call yourself a Kansan unless at one time or another you've plucked a, a head of wheat off of, a, off of a wheat plant and rubbed it in your hand to break, make the seeds break away from the chaff. And you can kind of blow the chaff out of your hand. You can munch on the seeds. Well, that's exactly what the disciples were doing. And it says, and when the Pharisees saw this, they said to Jesus, look, your disciples are doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath. And Jesus answered, haven't you read what David did when his, he and his companions were hungry? He entered the house of God and he and his companions ate the consecrated bread, which was not lawful for them to do, but only for the priests. Or haven't you read in the law that the priests on the Sabbath duty in the temple de desecrate the Sabbath yet are innocent? I tell you there is something greater than the temple here. If you had known what these words mean, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would have not condemned these innocent men. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Now what does he mean by that? Well, again, the Pharisees come up, they see, they see the, the apostles plucking some wheat off the plants and, you know, again, munching on the seeds. And basically what they're accusing them of is working on the Sabbath. They're accusing them of, of harvesting on the Sabbath. And, you know, Jesus is kind of going, I, you know, again, I, you know, this is kind of Father Fred's interpretation of this, so take it for what it's worth. This isn't the official teaching of the church, and this isn't, you know, out of the scriptures, but I think it's pretty reasonable. 
And that is, I think Jesus is kind of saying, look guys, I'm a Pharisee too. You're a Pharisee. Let's take a look at this. You know, all these guys are doing are just getting a little something to eat. It's, it's permitted to eat on the Sabbath. What's the big deal? And I think the Pharisees would have asked to answer him, Jesus, we know, we understand, we see where you're coming from. In fact, we agree with you, but you know human nature as well as we do. And if we don't keep a clamp on this, if we don't keep this under control, if we allow people to pluck one head of weed off one week, the next week they're going to pluck off a handful. And the next week they're going to come out and they're going to pluck out a basketful so they can take some home because somebody forgot to buy grain. And so they're going to pluck off a basketful and take it home and, you know, process it to get the chaff away and everything so that they can, you know, grind their meal, you know, to make bread. And the next thing you know, we've forsaken the Sabbath altogether. There'll be full-fledged full, full, bled, full fledged harvesting going on. And when we forsake the Sabbath, then we remove ourselves from God's protection. The Romans are breathing down our neck and we're dead meat. You know, so you can sort of see, again, what the, what, how the Pharisees are operating here, what's motivating them. What's motivating them is simple fear. And that fear, I think, is pretty reasonable. And so, um, furthermore, you know, when, when you go on and you, you see um, some of the other things, you know, that, that, that Jesus says when he's talking about dealing with the Pharisees, you know, he, he tells himself, like in Matthew chapter 5, verse 20, this is in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says, for I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. All right, so he's, he's telling people that in order to get to heaven, you have to be better than the Pharisees. You know, that the Pharisees are good, and you have to be even more righteous than they are. That sounds like a guy that's got, you know, some, some respect, you know, for, for what the Pharisees are up to. Another example comes from the great parable, the prodigal son, which um, I think is really kind of misnamed. In, in Luke chapter 15, in, chapter, in verse 1, it says here, you know, there, there's, there's three you know, people or three parties here that we want to look at. It says the tax collectors and sinners, that's one party. We're all drawing near to listen to Jesus. That's the second party. But the Pharisees and scribes, the third party, began to complain saying, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. So to them, he addressed this parable. Now we've got these, we've got these pronouns in here that we've got to associate with their antecedent, you know, proper nouns. So to them, he addressed this parable. Who's them and who's he? He obviously is Jesus. Them is the scribes and the Pharisees. Okay, he's not, he's not addressing this parable of the tax collectors and sinners. So again, I'm going to read chapter verses 1 through 3 again. The tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to listen to Jesus. But the Pharisees and scribes began to complain, saying, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. So, then we're going to substitute the proper nouns here. So, to the Pharisees and scribes, Jesus addressed this parable. Then he goes to tell the three parables of the woman and the lost coin, the shepherd and the lost sheep, the father and the lost son. Okay, and you know, I think it, rather than calling it the prodigal son, let's just keep it consistent with the first two parables. So, he talks about, you know, which, you know, which woman having 10 silver coins and losing one doesn't engage in a diligent search, search of the house and sweeps the house until she finds her lost coin. And when she finds it, she's very happy. She calls in her friends, you know, celebrate with me because I found my, my coin that was lost. You know, she's, she's happier over the, having found the, the one lost coin than over the nine coins that she didn't lose. And then, which, you know, which of you having lose, you know, if you have a hundred sheep and you lose one up in the hills, 
don't you know go out and look for it and when you find it you bring it back and you call your friends rejoice with me because I have lost you know I've recovered my lost sheep all right and so he's, he's more happy over the one sheep that he got back than an nine nine that were not lost then the father and the lost son and so you, again you can with with the story of the prodigal son you know the brilliant brilliance of that particular parable i one time remember hearing a, a theology dude i think he was the guy that had kind of a background in theology and psychology he said that he could teach an entire semester class on just the prodigal son and when you look at all the various things that are going on in there it's a very dense um, parable and there's a lot of things happening but the thing is is a lot of times you know we it, it, this isn't this bad it's not this is a bad thing but we just kind of put the blinders on and we go, well, you know, the story of the prodigal son, that's about, you know, God being ready to forgive us sinners. You know, you always hear this if you go to an Advent or a Latin re reconciliation service, they'll read this, the parable of the prodigal son. And, and they'll correct, this is correct. It isn't that this is wrong. You know, but people will say yes. And, you know, just as the father waited for the prodigal son to come back and received him with open arms and forgave him and so on, you know, our heavenly father wants to do with us. That's all true. But the thing of it is, that's not the main reason why Jesus told the parable, okay? Jesus is telling the parable to the scribes and the Pharisees who are afraid. And what are they afraid of? They're afraid that the Romans are gonna come and you know, they don't remain faithful to the covenant, that the Romans are gonna come and destroy their, their temple and their, their society. And so whenever you know, Jesus is welcoming sinners, you know, tax collectors and sinners and eating with them, that is, you know, definitely kind of goes against the law of Moses in a certain sense. And so out of fear, you know, they're going, you know, why are you eating with tax collectors and sinners? And so Jesus says, look, I'm just trying to bring the tax collectors and the sinners back and put them up on the same level as you guys, you know, in a certain sense, that's what he's saying. And so the thing is, we go through the entire prodigal son story of, you know, the younger son demanding his share of the inheritance, going off, squandering his money and so on, you know, coming to his senses and realizing he needs to come back and, you know, eat at his father's table again and so on, even if it's as a slave. And so he comes back and the father receives him and throws his arms around his neck and puts clothes on him and shoes on his feet and a ring on his finger and so on. And then it says then the older brother is out in the field and he hears the sound of music and dancing and he comes in. So here's where we're going to pick up the story. He says, now the older son had been out in the field and on his way back as he neared the house, he heard the sound of music and dancing. He called one of the servants and asked what this might mean. The servant said to him, your brother has returned and your father has slaughtered the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and when he refused to enter the house, his father came out and pleaded with him. The older brother said to his father in reply, look, all these years I have served you and not once did I disobey your orders. Yet you never even gave me a young goat to feast on with my friends. But when this son of yours returns, who has swallowed up your property with prostitutes, for him you slaughter the fattened calf. The father said to him, my son, you are here with me always and everything that I have is yours. But we must celebrate and rejoice because your brother was dead and has come back to life again. He was lost and has been found. And so obviously in, in these stories, you know, the woman is God, the lost coin is the tax collectors and sinners. The nine coins that are not lost are the faithful Pharisees. With the shepherd, the lost, the, you know, the story of the shepherd, the shepherd is God. The lost sheep is the tax collectors and sinners. The nine nine that are not lost are the scribes and the Pharisees. In the story of the prodigal son, the father of course is God. The lost son are the tax collectors and sinners. The son that is not lost represents the Pharisees and the scribes. 
Now look at how the father refers to these people in verse 31. My son, you are here with me always and everything that I have is yours. Does that sound like someone that's mad at someone that, that, you know, that despises someone or is disgusted with someone? I don't think so. If Jesus wanted to tell this parable differently, he could have said, my son, older son, you're far from perfect yourself. Now get in there and celebrate or, you know, I'm cutting you off from the family. You know, the father doesn't talk to him that way. Jesus talks to the Pharisee and says, you are here with me always and everything that I have is yours. I mean, you, you can see, you know, that Jesus is basically telling the scribes and the Pharisees, you're good people and no one's taken that away from you. The kingdom of heaven is yours, but now we must celebrate and rejoice because the tax collectors and sinners want to be like you guys, you see? And so again, I think that, you know, this is, this is kind of a, a, a big disconnect that, that a lot of us have when we're talking about the Pharisees because we always just kind of paint them as being bad people. And, you know, make no, make no mistake about it. The, the Pharisees were very much involved with the execution of Jesus. And Jesus himself takes them on. You know, he calls them, you know, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. And so, um, you know, the, the, that kind of, you know, takes care of the first half of what I want to talk about. And then when we come back for the second half of the program, we're going to talk about how we kind of apply this to our own place and our own times. So again, I am Father Fred Gatchett. I'm the rector of Sacred Heart Cathedral in Salina, Kansas. I'm also the vicar general for the Diocese of Salina. And you're listening to the Double-Edged Sword program here on the Divine Mercy family of, of Catholic radio stations, 88.1 KVDM Hayes, 88.1 KRTT Great Bend, and 101.7 KJDM Lindsburg and Salina. And um, we'll be right back. So everybody sit tight and um, we'll be right back with you for the second part of the program. Hey gang, we are back. I am Father Fred Gatchett. I'm the Rector of Sacred Heart Cathedral in Salina, Kansas, and the Vicar General for the Diocese of Salina. And you are tuned into the Double-Edged Sword program here on the Divine Mercy family of Catholic radio stations, 88.1 KVDM Hayes, 88.1 KRTT Great Bend, and 101.7 KJDM Lindsburg and Salina. And on the Double-Edged Sword program, we're cutting to the heart of a deceptive culture. And we're glad to have you with us again today on this um, installment of Double-Edged Sword as we're cutting into the deceptive culture of the Pharisees. And you know what people mean when we talk about the Pharisees, and you know what we what we probably should figure out more of what we don't mean. And in the first part of the program, I tried to uh, tried to demonstrate that the Pharisees, for the most part, were probably pretty good people, and um, they were trying to follow the law of Moses. And they found themselves in a very difficult situation. They were living in an occupied land. Their land was occupied by a foreign power, the Roman Empire. And the Pharisees knew from their past history, from the Old Testament, what we call the Old Testament, what they would just call their history, is that whenever they remained faithful to the covenant, they did okay, and God would protect them. But if they forsook the covenant, if they went away from the covenant and followed idols or whatever the case might have been, then they would remove themselves from God's protection and bad things would happen. And so the Pharisees were trying desperately to hold their, you know, their Jewish culture and their Jewish nation together in the face of all of, of the oppression from the Romans because they knew that if the people just kind of went, just kind of threw their arms up and said, well, let's just, you know, go along to get along and there's no point in fighting with the Romans, kind of like what the Sadducees said. 
we might as well just go ahead and learn how to coexist with the Romans. And if that means we have to kind of sacrifice and, and compromise on some of our beliefs, then so be it. And the Pharisees are saying, no, we can't do that. And so, you know, operating primarily, think out of fear, they, you know, they were trying to keep people to make, make sure they followed every small part of the letter of the law. And Jesus comes in and says, no, you guys, come on, man, lighten up. You know, we can, we can be faithful to our religion. We can be faithful to God, but you guys are just kind of taking it too far. And, you know, the, the reasons why the Pharisees were pushing back, again, I think some of them weren't. I think some of them, like Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, were very sympathetic to Jesus. Others were kind of, you know, again, they were paralyzed by fear. And certainly there were others who they had built their life up, their livelihoods depended upon, you know, their their reputations, their role in society, their role in the religion depended upon their particular interpretation of the law. And anybody that was going to put themselves in conflict with that would, you know, earn their, earn their ire. So they're pushing back. But the thing of it is, you know, so again, I, I think that, you know, the Pharisees were probably, you know, they were a mixed bag. They weren't just this monolithic bunch of hypocrites that everybody wants to kind of make them out to be. And so, you know, even, even in the Gospel of St. Luke in chapter 11, verses, verse 42, you know, Jesus is letting loose on the Pharisees. He says, woe to you Pharisees, for you tithe mint, rue, and herbs and all kinds of all kinds and neglect justice and the love of God. Okay, so there Jesus has a pretty good point. It would be like if someone, if Jesus was to say, you know, woe to you Catholics. You know, you go to Mass on Sunday, you pray your rosary, you receive your sacraments, but you neglect justice and love of God. Well, that would be a, that would be a valid critique. You know, that, you know, the whole thing is, is the, the practice of our faith is supposed to lead us to justice and love of God. And the justice and love of God is supposed to deepen our experience of our faith. You know, supposed to kind of feed on each other. But notice what Jesus says. He says, you tithe mint and rue and herbs of all kinds and neglect justice and love of God. It is these that you ought to have practiced without neglecting the others. And see, it's the without neglecting the others that everybody always just kind of glances over. You know, these you should have practiced. What should they have practiced? Justice and love of God. What should they not have neglected? Tithing mint, rue and herbs of all kinds because that's what the law of Moses told them to do. You know, in our day and age, people try to drive a divisive wedge between our acts of pious devotion in church and, you know, the things we do just as our devotion to God. And then on the, but then on the, on the flip side, on the outside, then would be, you know, our, our life on the street. And the thing of it is, is as, as a Christian, those two things are supposed to be in concert, just like, you know, the time in the times of the Jews. I mean, you know, Moses was no fool. And, you know, he, he put these things together. He put the law of Moses together under the guidance of God as a means to lead the people to be good people, to lead them to be, to, you know, to follow the path that God wants them to follow. And so, you know, what, what the Pharisees had done would, was, you know, they had separated these things. You know, Jesus lambasts them, I'm pretty sure it's in the Gospel of St. Mark, where he says, you know, you scribes and Pharisees, you will say that we have to dedicate, you know, our support for the temple but that any support that you had coming from me, talking to their parents, is, you know, is nullified. You know, in other words, they could say, well, you know, I can't support my mom and dad with these resources because that's been dedicated to the temple. And Jesus is going, get some common sense here. That temple will take care of itself eventually. You know, you, you know, the most immediate need is to take care of your mom and dad. And so, you know, again, 
you know, Jesus isn't just issuing blanket statements against the scribes and Pharisees because he himself was a Pharisee. And, you know, that um, he, you know, he, whenever, he, whenever he talks about these things, he's not, again, just telling the Pharisees to get lost. He's trying to get them on board with him. And so, again, I think that, you know, the, the reason why this is important for us to understand in our times is because, you know, of all the sins that are left, there's really only one sin that's left in the, the broader, you know, American culture. You notice the sin is not murder because we can, you know, murder unborn babies at will. It's not theft because, you know, people get away with, you know, stealing in our day and age, sometimes even up to billions of dollars in, you know, shady government transactions and things like that. And, um, you know, so, and it's certainly not adultery because, you know, adultery is paraded around on our on our TV screens and our movie screens is something that's just normal and, you know, not fornication or anything like that, certainly not drunkenness. It's not, you know, I mean, we're legalizing drugs and marijuana all over the place. And so what's the one sin that's left? And the one sin that's left is hypocrisy, all right? And the reason why hypocrisy is the one sin that's left is because in a culture that honors God, then things like theft and murder and adultery and fornication and blasphemy and things like that are seen as an affront against God. And so that would be bad news. Well, we don't believe in God anymore. We believe in ourselves. And since the God of the self, when you're your own God, then that allows you then to determine your own rules of what you consider to be right and wrong, depending on how you feel about them. Well, then the only crime that's left is that of hypocrisy, because this person said they were going to do one thing and they turned around and did the other. And so whenever we, we see any kind of bit of hypocrisy, then we, you know, we, everybody, rightly so, you know, people get upset about that. But the thing is, is again, people, they'll go to the Bible and they'll use Jesus's statements and so forth against the Pharisees to say, see, you're just like one of those Pharisees. You're, you don't practice what you preach. Well, of course, we have to practice what we preach. But I don't think you can necessarily go in and say that, the, that Jesus's teachings and his his, um, you know, fights and stuff with the Pharisees necessarily means that our acts of pious devotion are therefore invalid because Jesus himself validated the acts of the Pharisees. You know, you know he says, these you should have practiced without neglecting the others. He tells people, like we said in the, in the first part, section of the program, you know, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. And so our acts of pious devotion those things have to be in concert with, you know, what we're doing on the street, you know, so that if I, if I pray a daily rosary, if I read my scriptures regularly, if I, you know, make the stations of the cross, you know, if I go to, you know, going to mass on Sunday, or if I go to daily mass, if I listen to Catholic radio, you know, anything like this, if I'm going to do these things, well, well and good, but those things should drive me into a more deep commitment, as Jesus says here in Luke chapter 11, you know, to go for justice and the love of God and, um, you know, justice for my neighbor and, and, and love of God. And um, furthermore, you know, in, in Luke chapter 11, it says one of the lawyers answered him, teacher, when you say these things, you insult us too. And Jesus said, woe also to you lawyers, for you load people with burdens hard to bear and you yourself will not lift a finger to ease them. Now, the thing of it is, is that, yeah, to, you know, if we are, if we are to follow and to do what we're told to do, by the Ten Commandments and by the teachings of the church. Um, is that a hard thing to do? You bet it is, especially in our day and age, all right? But notice, 
is Jesus going after these people because they load people with burdens hard to bear, that is the law of Moses, or is it because they will not lift a finger to ease them? See, it's one thing to tell people, you know, marriage is one man and one woman till death do you part. You know, that's a pretty tough road to hoe. You know, people know that, you know, talk to any married couple, you know, people, you know, married couples know very well that, um, you know, marriage is a difficult thing to live out. Marriage and family with kids in the home and all that kind of stuff. And so it's difficult. But just because it's difficult doesn't mean that we don't do it. You know, so, you know, you know, we have this very high ideal of, you know, one man, one woman committed to each other till death do us part. But then, you know, the church also provides the means, you know, to help people get through that. You know, there's innumerable programs at the parishes, you know, to help families. And then not the least of which then is are the sacraments there to help married couples. You know, they can frequent the sacrament of reconciliation, go to communion, you know, the, the grace that they receive in the sacrament of matrimony, you know, helps to, you know, ease that burden, helps to, you know, be able to, you know, help them do that. And so, again, you know, the, the, the kind of the first thing that I think needs to, be, needs to be brought out into the light is this idea that people go, well, those Pharisees were hypocrites. You're acting like a Pharisee. Therefore, you're a hypocrite. Therefore, we don't have to listen to whatever it is you're saying. That's not true. You know, I think if we look at, you know, we look at the difficult things that lie ahead of us as living our Christian lives, none of us are going to live it perfectly. But what's laid in front of us is basically two paths. One way is to say, well, yes, I'm a Christian. I know what, what the church teaches. I know what Jesus teaches. And I fall down daily. Um, does that make me a hypocrite? No, it makes me a sinner. And, um, and there's a remedy for sin. It's called reconciliation. But the other thing I can do is I can just say, well, I have no standards. And if I have no standards, I have nothing to live up to. And that's kind of what we'll just call, that's what the other side does. You know, when you look at the unholy alliance, of the abortion crowd, of the gay marriage crowd, and things like that. You know, when your highest ideals are abortion and sodomy, you don't have very, very far to fall. When those are the things that you're out there pushing as the greatest goods, is again, is you know, is abortion and sodomy. You know, where do you have to go from there? That you're already down at the bottom of the barrel. Whereas in in Christian land, we're talking about love of neighbor and justice and compassion and helping others out and things like that. You know marriage, you know, living out till death do us part, you know, priesthood, you know, living celibacy and, and, and you know, living that out as, as best we can and, 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 you know, for life, you know, until we die. You know, these are difficult things to do. And when we fall, you know, when, when people don't live up to these things as Christians or as married people, or as clergy, whatever the case might be, if we can fall, we can fall quite a ways. But again, the, the only other alternative is just say, well, I just have no values. And then that's what happens is those who have no values are constantly pointing their finger at those who do have values. And it's like shooting fish in a barrel. Because if you, if you come back on one of these people, on one of these journalists or something like that, and say, well, you know, what do you value? Well, you know, I, I believe in choice. No, you believe in a woman's so-called right to rip an unborn baby to shreds. You know, I believe in marriage equality. No, you don't. You believe in sodomy, you know. And so, you know, the, the thing is, is, you know, those who have no values, it's always very easy for them to take pot shots at those who do, and then to try to use the, the whole thing with the Pharisees, you know, as, as kind of their ammunition, as to say, you know, well, you know, even, you know, you know, you, Jesus, your master, you know, he even took on the Pharisees for their hypocrisy. Yes, he did. But he was trying to offer them a way to 
to get past the hypocrisy and, and be good people. I don't really see that coming out of, you know, people who are constantly badgering people with no faith who badger the people who do have faith. You know, people who do have faith are constantly going to fall, and we know that. But we pick up and we keep going. That's what it means to be faithful. Another misunderstanding or misuse of Phariseeism is people will use this as a defense. You know, if someone comes up and says, you know, should you really be doing that? You know, it looks like you're drinking too much or you're acting dishonestly or something. You know, people will say, well, that's Phariseeism. You're just being too much of a stickler for the rules. And, you know, again, people will use this mis misinterpretation or just, you know, this misunderstanding of what Phariseeism is or is not as some kind of a defense for, for their own bad behavior, thinking that, well, if someone actually thinks that, you know, the Ten Commandments or, you know, various teachings of the church or, you know, the biblical um, exhortations we have on certain morality, that if anyone actually thinks that these things should be adhered to, is somehow it acting like a Pharisee. And that certainly isn't true. The, the other thing, too, about the Pharisees, I think, that needs to be kind of addressed in a fortified manner is the fear. You know, the idea that, you know, the, the, the Pharisees were acting primarily out of fear. And, you know, I forgot who said it, but um, it was a smart guy that said a population that is in fear is a population that's easy to control. And, you know, we as people living in, in you know, in, a, in whichever country you live in, it doesn't matter. But let's just pick us since we're living in the United States. You know, what are we doing to make sure that we see through stuff and go, you know, because every year when the election cycle starts, everybody gets, you know, their stomachs all worked up in a knot and all the coffee shops are a buzz. You know, well, if you vote for candidate X, you know, all hell's going to break loose. Well, we can't vote for candidate Y. If candidate Y gets elected, you know, the, the whole country will go to hell in a bucket, you know, and so on. And so, again, when you look at politicians running for office, they love using fear. They love, you know, trying to tell us that unless you vote for me, something very bad is going to happen to you because of my opponent, all right? And, and we fall for it. You know, we fall for it every two years with the House of Representatives. We fall for it every four years with the, you know, with the presidential elections, you know, and, and you know, other elections, you know, the, the Senate's in for six years. So they kind of get cycled through here and there. But the point, though, is, is that um, if we're going to allow ourselves to be led by fear, you know, people do not make good decisions when they're acting out of fear. And, and so, again, I think that's exactly what happened with the scribes and the Pharisees. They were afraid. They had a very good reason to be afraid. Um, they knew from their past that whenever they would forsake the covenant, bad things would happen to them. And so they knew that somehow or another that they had to, you know, get past this and that they had to, they had to follow the law to the letter, and that way they would stay in God's favor, and, and bad things, in this case the Roman Empire, wouldn't be able to wouldn't be able to destroy them. But I think that you know we as you know as Americans in our own day and age, you know whether whether it's you know coronavirus or whether it's you know something you know with, with the elections and so on, we cannot allow ourselves to be drug around by fear, as Jesus Himself says. You know, fear is useless. What is needed is trust. And as long as we allow ourselves to be motivated by fear, then we just get wrapped around the finger of, of these various political candidates and stuff running for office. And then again, that's how they try to win the day. If you don't vote for me, my, my opponent's gonna do something bad to you and you don't want that to happen. And so again, they, they try to use, um, you know, use fear to, um, to get us to, to do what they want and to vote for them. So to kind of recap a little bit, Again, I think that the Pharisees could be divided into, into you know, various categories. First, I mean, there were Pharisees who were bad people. 
There were Pharisees who were religious hypocrites. There were Pharisees who were just in it for what they could get for themselves. There were Pharisees that were in it for the, you know, for the social status and things like that. You know, bad news. They were definitely there. There were Pharisees who were good people. Nicodemus was a Pharisee. Joseph of Arimathea was a Pharisee. Jesus was a Pharisee. St. Paul was a Pharisee. And so, you know, there were people that were trying to figure stuff out. There were Pharisees who were good Jewish people who were trying to live the law, and they were trying to do the best they could. And there were Pharisees that were living in fear, you know, there, and, and there were Pharisees who were using that fear to control other people, kind of like what we saw, you know, in the Gospel of St. John with, with when the Pharisees, after, after Jesus um, raises Lazarus from the dead, you know, they, they say just in verse 48 there, chapter 11, verse 48, if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, then the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation. They're living in fear. Caiaphas, who looks like he was bad news, is the one that speaks up and says, it is better for you that one man die for the people rather than the whole nation perish. You know, Caiaphas uses the, this fear that the people have to get them to turn against Jesus. And so again, I think that one of the things we have to be careful about for ourselves is, when are we being led around by the nose because of our fear? And if, if, we're, allow, if we're allowing ourselves to be governed by fear, then you know, we're just like those folks back then that, that you know, were yelling crucify and to put Jesus on the cross. So again, hopefully, you know, after you know, listening to this, you know, we, we can see that the Pharisees weren't necessarily bad people. Um, in fact, Jesus praises them in, in a couple of places. St. Paul includes his Phariseeism as, you know, on his resume, that I was, a, I was a Pharisee, I was very devout to the law, you know, and things like that. So um, hopefully, you know, next time you, you go to Mass and you hear the, you know, one of the priests is reading the Gospel talking about the Pharisees, listen closely and see if you can figure out which particular, you know, aspect of Phariseeism is being um, illustrated in that particular Gospel reading. Is it the, the Pharisees that are doing their best to lead a good life? Is it the Pharisees that are being motivated by fear? Or is it the Pharisees that, you know, really are, you know, and I, they were probably a minority, just like is usually the case. There's just a, a few bad apples, though, that, you know, were really bad news, you know, that were, that were um, using their position as Pharisees and using the fear in a way to control others and to kind of get what they want. And I think that in so doing, it tells us a lot about ourselves and it'll help us to more deeply enter into the mysteries that are the scriptures. So again, thank you for tuning in to this installment of the Double-Edged Sword program. I am Father Fred Gatchett, the rector of Sacred Heart Cathedral in Salina, Kansas. I'm also the Vicar General for the Diocese of Salina, and you've been listening to the Double-Edged Sword program here on 88.1 KVDM Hayes, 101.7 KJDM Lindsburg in Salina, and 88.1 KRTT Great Bend. And we invite you at any time to contact the radio station by um, the website is um, www.dvmercy.com. That's D is in David and V is in Victor, dvmercy.com. And there on our website, you will find all sorts of goodies. The, the telephone number to contact the station is 785-621-4110. If you have an idea for a future um, program that you would like us to do on Double Oid Sword, um, give us a call and I'll do the homework and we'll see if we can um, find some answers for you. Also, if you're interested in underwriting on Divine Mercy Radio on our three Catholic radio stations, um, reaching the Ellis County Metroplex, the Barton County Metroplex, and the Selene and McPherson County Metroplexes, and you can also contact the radio station by going to our website, dvmercy.com. And um, there you will find all sorts of information there about um, underwriting possibilities. 
Um, we also have our schedule on the, on the website of the various programs, including our two in-house produced programs here in, in the station itself, um, where we have um, one the One Body program and, and, and Double-Edged Sword. Um, not very many local Catholic radio stations can say they have two in-house produced um, programs. We're very proud to be able to do that and happy to be able to bring that to you. So again, um, this is Father Fred Gatchett. You've been listening to the Double-Edged Sword program on Divine Mercy Radio. Um, thank you for tuning in, and if today you hear his voice, harden not your hearts.